events afterward that were, uh, that it seemed like it blessed people. And I thought, I'll just share that one part. It's the poem that was written in, uh, starting in, on page 210. And I thought, maybe this would be a, just a good way after all the ideals that were lifted up in this book, all the different things he said a church should be and it could be, and while, you know, the devil wants to attack it and pull people apart. But uh, there's this one poem that I thought this is this is a good way to maybe s- just to sum everything up and keep our focus straight. He starts out by saying, "Is it possible that God could use you right where you are, but your dream of a perfect church is keeping you from fully engaging with your community?" Consider the thought in this poem: the vibrant virtual church. Here's the poem. The man loved to tell of a church with such life that it never was bothered by gossip or strife. A place where each member shared blessing around with uh, words thoughtless or hurtful could never be found. This church, he told folks, loved the hurting and lost. And a wandering sheep was sought at great cost. In prisons and alleys where evil is crowned, he'd he'd seen them there freeing those Satan had bound. When they met for service, each face had a glow. Their harmonious singing was never too slow. The preaching was powerful, the best he had heard. The message was never by fear of man blurred. He fruitlessly searched, for he had a mind keen, for a church which compared to this church which he'd seen, where sweet, gentle children were kind when they played. When one had a struggle, they all stopped and prayed. He'd looked he looked the world over, searching, searched churches around, yet never an equal to this one he'd found. Most churches have people who dabble with sin. Their members all struggle again and again. But this church, in contrast, had power within. He'd watched it for years, and he'd never found sin. So the man grew discouraged as he struggled to find a church that compared to this church in his mind. He loved to recount just how churches should be and how and he freely would try to help others see how glorious and perfect if they too could find this church that existed alone in his mind. So from church to church he continually bounced as with zeal and great boldness he skill, skillfully trounced each flaw he, that he found and he freely maligned each church that was less than the one in his mind. Many times we sit down and bemoan and deplore while God has before us a wide open door, but our minds are consumed by the fact that we find that our church isn't quite like the one in our mind. But I'm thankful so glad that our God didn't wait and offer salvation to only the great. T'was the feeble he died for, the halt and the blind. It was the imperfect people that he had in his mind. God has placed us in churches imperfect and stressed, Defective, deficient, lethargic at best. But when God's our focus, our joy we will find. More glorious His church than the one in our mind. God has not promised perfect church communities. Just as personal sanctification is an ongoing process, so we find the process of building church communities. It's an ongoing work. And if we're going to pursue God's will in our churches, it will be both painful and rewarding. I thought that was a good, good way to sum up Everything we've been learning for the last, I don't know, how eight months, Caleb said, however long it's been. So uh, thank you for that. So yes, as was mentioned, I uh, was asked to share my testimony. Now there's, there's people that, you know, when they hear the word share your testimony, they mean, they think, give the story of your salvation. 
when you came to the Lord. Tell us the story. How did that happen? Well, I could do that. I could tell how I was raised in a Christian home. And, you know, when I came to conviction of my sin, I went and talked to my dad. And we, we prayed together. And he led me through some of the steps. And a few months later, I was baptized. And I guess the service is over. Very brief. Or I could do like Jeremy said. Your testimony is more than that. It's more than just that one decision. There's a lot of different pieces to a story of your own personal testimony. And certainly that is a, a wonderful one. If you can, you know, talk about that day that you made that decision. But, you know, we could add details to that. We could say, well, here's what, I, here's what happened. And so we want to, you know, pump it up a little bit and maybe add some details uh, to make it more interesting. Like, for instance, here's a little true fact about my conversion. From that day forward, I never smoked one time. I never drank. I never did drugs from that day forward. But the problem is I never did before either. So, well, what difference does that make? So, you know, what, what else do we want to talk about here? Well, here's, here's a story I had heard one time. It was called Turning Points in American History. It was a college course, if I remember right. And this man was going to give a, lesson, a, a whole series of, of things in American history. But instead of just giving it year after year after year, he took it turning point by turning point by turning point. You see, it's those turning points that really define who we are. We go a stretch in our life, and we come to a crossroads, and we make a decision, and we turn, and we go a different way. And then we come to another crossroads, we make another decision, and the trajectory of our life turns, and we walk another way. And so I'd like to approach this testimony time this morning in in a little bit that way. I'd like to share turning points in my life. Before we do that, since it is uh, my story, it's, 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 there's not necessarily a lot of scripture that ends, that, that, that is part of this, but I don't want to neglect the scripture. I want to start with one that I really felt describes what, um, as I look at my life, what God has, what God has done. It's, it's Psalm 31 verse 19. I'll just read it here. It says, oh, how great is thy goodness, not my goodness, thy goodness, God's goodness. How great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men. And that's my testimony. God has an amazing amount of goodness for, and he wants to give it. He's a good God. He has been good. And I don't know, uh, Benjamin, if you're, what if you have already have a song picked out for the end or not? But I would I would love if whatever song you pick out would be one of praise, thanksgiving, something praising God for what He's done, thanking Him. It's uh, there's there's so much to be thankful for. So you can think about that, even if there's only one verse or one little phrase of thanksgiving. That, that's that's that would be a blessing. But my life, uh, well, started out. I was born into the United States of America, and I didn't choose to be born in the United States of America. This was something that happened to me without any of my doings. That I, This is the, the land that I was born into. Many people would love to be born in the United States. Many people try to come here. I've watched some documentaries of people that were born elsewhere, and they go to tremendous lengths to, to come here. I didn't choose it. I can't take credit for it. It was simply, if it's a blessing, and I think it is, 
It was a gift that that, that uh, I received. That doesn't mean people are happy here necessarily, and maybe not even happier than most pe- most places in the, in the world. Maybe they are, but the fact is a lot of people want to live in the United States of America. That freedom they hear about, the opportunity they hear about, a lot of people try to come here. I just got it by somebody else's choice. It wasn't my choice. I was also born into a church-going family. And, you know, if I could... Uh, just talk about the difference of a church-going family versus a non-church-going family. The blessings of growing up hearing about Jesus is a huge blessing. Not only that, but I could take, if I wanted to, all the, you know, list on the board, all the various churches that I could have been born into, and I guess I'd have to say of all the, you know, of all the churches I would have chosen, I was probably in the top 1% of all the churches that I could have chosen if, if I would have wanted to be born, born into. Not only that, I was born into a home that was a blessing to me. Again, if I could list all the various homes I could have been born into, I, I would say not only the top 1%, probably the top one-tenth of 1%. Uh, a mom and a dad that, that uh, you know, loved God, feared God, taught us children about God. These are things I didn't choose. I didn't choose any of that. I received it. I can't take credit for it. But here's what is true. I will give account for it. I will give account for everything that, that, uh, that, that I was given. And it doesn't mean there weren't struggles. There were struggles. There was, you know, there was, you know, my parents were human. Sometimes the flesh showed through. My own flesh showed through. There was sometimes conflict. Sometimes there was even contemplation on my part of doing something drastic. And thank God I didn't do it. He spared me from some of those drastic, uh, Things that went through my mind because of because of my own flesh, because of maybe my parents' flesh, but God spared me from doing that. And at the end of the day, all I can do is say, "Thank you, God, for doing what you've done. Thank you, God, for giving me the home and the church that you gave me. Thank you, God, for putting me in the country. Thank you, God, for putting me in the year. You know, 1972. I could have been 100 years earlier. Could have been 50 years later." There's a lot of things that could have been different, but he chose that year, he chose that date, he chose this place, and all I can say is, thank you, God, for what you've done. And, you know, I can only believe that maybe God looked at this life he was getting ready to create and says, you know, this guy's a weakling. If I'd put him in the home that some of you guys grew up in with the challenges, maybe the conflicts, maybe the temptations, he wouldn't have survived. He would have never chosen to follow me. And so instead, he picked out a home that was going to teach me about God. And, uh, you know, maybe he knew how weak I would be in the area of, of lust. We heard about that last Sunday. And so he, you know, put me in a home where uh, my dad gave me warnings about some of these things as I was growing up. He says, you know, if you would have got caught in that particular web, you would have been too weak. You never would have, you never would have uh, recovered. You never would have repented. I am not wouldn't be at all surprised that's what God was thinking. And so he he protected me and he reserved some of those more challenging situations for people who are stronger than me and said they can handle it. They know how to they they will repent. They will come to uh you know, they will come to salvation, but we're going to we're going to put some fences around your life. Maybe that's what God was thinking. So as I said, I was young when I came to the Lord. I think I was around 12 years old when I you know, I, I felt we'd always grown up hearing about the age of accountability. You know, when God calls you, come to Him. And so I was, I, I kind of had a sensitive conscience growing up. And when that, 
when I when I felt like it was time, you know, I prayed about it. God, is this really you calling? And I wrestled back and forth, but eventually, you know, I went to uh, I went to uh, went to my parents, talked to them, and they led me through some of those steps. There was a commitment there. Being so long ago, I don't remember all the details, but I remember that there was a commitment. It was a decision. There was uh, some instruction, then baptism, and it was. It was. I was very grateful that I had it. As I said, I had a, a, a clear conscience. I mean, a, a sensitive conscience, and I wanted a clear conscience. And I'm going to put that on the board. This was. I, I'm going to put this up as a turning point. I'm going to recommend this. Um, I'm going to abbreviate this. If you want to write the whole thing out, you can. But I'm going to put that. CC stands for clear conscience. In my life, making a decision when a conscience is violated to 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 clear it up. There were things I could remember back before my conversion, before I committed my life to Jesus, people I had wronged, maybe things I had done, uh, taken from people. I would write a letter. I would apologize to them. There were things after uh, my commitment to Christ that I had to apologize to. And I would say, that's a blessing. If you're here and you want to get anything from this, get a clear conscience. Get a clear conscience and keep a clear conscience. And when you lose the clear conscience, get it back. The next thing, lesson that God wanted to teach me, a turning point, is the turning point, well, I'll, t- I'll put the word up here in just a moment, but I was, um, I think around 18 years old when our family was asked, would you take a trip down, would you take a move, actually, to the country of Belize? Well, at that time of life, I was enjoying myself in the youth group. We were having, you know, I had a job and it was, or it was like life was just beginning to open up for me. And then here we were asked to go on the mission field. Well, my parents decided, yes, we're going. And so we all got in a couple of cars and we drove down there. It was, uh, it was challenging. There were some enjoyable things about it, but you know, there were things about the, 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 the heat and the bugs and the, uh, at first the, I kind of worried about these things called yellow jaws, these snakes, but, you know, you pretty soon got used to the idea and just ignore the idea that they're out there. Once in a while, someone come by with these yellow jaw snakes, and they're highly poisonous. You know, one bite, they say, will kill you. Uh, I don't think that's quite accurate. You know, I think there there are there's antivenom and so forth you can do. But anyway, it was um, probably the hardest thing, though, was giving up my social life. I was in the youth group. I wanted to be with the youth group. So I thought, you know what, I can stick this out a few months and probably God will lead me back to, to the United States. And sure enough, I got a call. I said, hey, would you come and, and uh, teach school for us um, at uh, another community? And I, I wow, that, this is an answer to prayer. God is opening up doors for me. But when I went and talked to my parents, they said, well, let's talk to the mission board, see what they say. The mission board said, no, we really need you down there, down, down in Belize. We need you to stay here. And... So my parents said, wow, I think, I think you should stay. You ever feel in life that you're trapped? It's like, I want to do this really, really bad, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to please God, and so I have to choose between doing what I want and pleasing God, and that's a hard thing to wrestle through. I mean, wow, I just felt trapped. I, could, I couldn't win either way, but I finally decided, I guess what I want is going to have to be sacrificed for what God's will is. And uh, I, I look back at that, and it was, again, it's so long ago now, I hardly remember it. But what I do remember is the the, the, the decision that, that came, and then 
things that happened subsequent to that that I wonder what would have happened had I not went along with that plan that God had. And I'm so grateful that, you know, God put me into that. And, and, it, and that it was a clear trap. You know, if it would have been the door cracked open, I might have tried to put my shoulder up to that and get that thing, you know, push it open the rest of the way. But it was, it was, it was just very clear. This is what is, uh, is going to happen. So I'm going to put up there the word submission. It's a blessing. Even though it's extremely hard, even sometimes when we don't want it, submission is a blessing. It was a turning point in my life. Let's talk about my another huge blessing that God brought into my life. I don't know how much you believe in chance. Sometimes people roll dice. Sometimes we'll draw names out of a hat to let chance make decisions that they uh, um, don't want to make themselves or shouldn't make themselves. I think there's maybe maybe that's even a good thing sometimes. I went to Bible school. Actually, it was from Belize. I'd been to Bible school the first year. We went to Belize. The you know the agreement was made. Okay, yeah, you can you can go back for uh, for Bible school. So I did. I flew up. I was 19 years old, and and the way they arranged everything, they'd sit the boys and the girls across each other at these tables over lunchtime. Well, I um, I don't know how they decided who sat where. I think it was some sort of a random drawing, though. Well, I pulled, you know, when I, when I got my name there, here right across was, was this girl, Phoebe Mass. Now, I'd heard about this Phoebe Mass. I'd never, I'd never uh, met her that I remembered. Turned out later I figured out, yeah, I had actually met her at uh, uh, various events, but this was the first I ever remembered her. Well, she sat right across the table from me, possibly one girl over, but it was it was my cousin and then her, and uh, so I was right across the table from her. So that was the first I got to meet her. Now, that was the beginning. That was the first I remember her, okay? Um, anyway, long story short, two and a half years later, she came out to Oregon for harvest. We started a courtship, and um, eventually we figured out we loved each other, so we got married. How do you figure that out if you want to know if you love each other? Maybe you're courting and you're, well, how do, how do you know? Well, you know, if she walks in the room and your knees get all shaky, that would be a sign maybe something's going on. You, you should, you know, that, that's not probably the best way, but um, that's, uh, yeah. So she's been a blessing. It's a huge blessing. She's been, um, yeah, my life would never be the same. It defines, it's a, it's a big part of defining who I am today, this marriage that I've been involved in 26 years later. And um, 26 years later, yeah, I still get a little wobbly in my knees, you know, when she walks in. Not, yeah, kind of unhandy if you're trying to preach, but it's still a blessing. Um, God's done amazing work in her life as well. She's... Uh, she, she's, you know, God has laid, laid on her heart. There's a word that, I'm going to put the word up here on the board in just a little bit, that God opened up to her. It's the word that she felt she was guilty of early on in her marriage. It's this word control. And she was convicted early on. I I don't know that I necessarily picked it up, but she picked it up in her own heart that she was guilty of being a controlling person. There was a book that she gives, she read, Trust Versus Control. There's other books as well. That was the one that spoke to her. She's given that book out to many people. But but she, 
seeing it in her own life made her sensitive to others as well. And she is always encouraging people, don't, especially ladies, especially women, you know, if you want to bless your husbands, acknowledge your temptation to try to control and fight that tendency with all your heart. And, and that's, that's the, it, it is, uh, it has been a, a tremendous blessing to us in our marriage, you know, when God did that work in her heart. And she's been very sensitive to that ever since and been a blessing to me. And uh, it's not just ladies, by the way. I think if you're a man, you can sense that trust, that, that, that tendency to try to control things that aren't yours to control. That's very much probably a tendency in all of us. She's, she's sensitive to the ones that she's around, which are the, 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 the ladies in marriage. So anyway, my courtship in marriage has been a, a huge turning point, is a huge part of, of who I am today and what God has done. The next thing I want to do, put up here, turning point of priorities. I got a call early on in our marriage asking me, would I consider going with his brother to a prison ministry that he was going to? Now, during that time, I said, well, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'd kind of like to go do prison ministry. This was was actually Kervin Kreider. For those of you who know him, he was going to this prison work, and he had another brother who I think was maybe Roy Krupp, who had been going with him. And if I remember the story right, Roy moved away up to Washington, and now he's going by himself. Well, he faithfully kept on going, but he thought it'd be nice to have some extra help. So he called myself and Verl Troyer. Hey, would you guys want to come to along to this prison work? Well, yeah, that, that sounds great. I'd love to do that. What, what day of the week is it? What's well, Tuesday night? Well, Tuesday night was the day I played basketball. And so that didn't look like it was going to work because, uh, you know, we got together, me and some of my friends playing basketball every Tuesday night. And now we can't do both, obviously. So I had to make a choice. I wrestled with it just a little bit, but I decided I will go to the prison work. And you know, that was an eye-opener in my life. It was a, sitting across from these, this was a juvenile prison. So these were young men, 16, 17, 18 years old. They had grown up, most of them had grown up in a very sad situation. Um, but they were, yeah, it was, you know, sitting across from, you'd, you'd go, we'd get there to this big open room. And say, hey guys, we're here for a Bible study. And let's go into this room. It would have been, almost been nice if they all had become, but they didn't. They could choose. Sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes ten. I mean, it was it varied, but, you know, they'd come in there and we'd, we'd have a Bible study. And we'd talk about things. And, you know, sitting across from those guys who knew next to nothing about the gospel, and all of a sudden the focus is on me, on whoever it is, or whoever is giving the talk. Explain the Bible to this person. He has no background in the Bible at all. He doesn't know what the plan of salvation. doesn't know how to come to Christ. Explain it to him. That was a stretching experience. But it opened my eyes to the world around me. It opened my eyes to how a lot of people grew up that I don't even know these people. It was, uh, it was a time of stimulating discussions on the way to and from Albany. It was, it was up toward, uh, it was actually just right there um, across from the college, the, the campus there uh, that, Oak Creek, I think it's still there. Anyway, um, we'd, we'd visit on the way in, and, and it was it was a powerful time. We eventually it came to the point we said, "Hey, let's let's get together and pray for revival," and we did. We started an early morning prayer meetings one time a week, had more people join. Eventually, that turned into the beginnings of uh, Valley Christian Fellowship Number One, and uh, 
So, yeah, the rest is history. But that was a turning point in my life to make some decisions about priorities. Basketball versus prison ministry. What am I going to do? And um, and it's been a blessing. Another Another turning point. Sometimes turning points come in a very simple way. Somebody hands you a tape. Back then it was tapes. Then for a while it was CDs. Now they send you a link. Um, but back then it was a tape. Somebody handed a tape to me by Keith Daniel called Every Branch in Me That Beareth Not Fruit. You know, as time went on, I listened to a lot more Keith Daniel sermons. This never was my favorite, but this was the life-changing one for me. And he was talking about our quiet time. He was preaching from John 15, and he, you know, he, he was always kind of beat around the bush whether he believed in once saved, always saved or not. But he did believe John 15, whatever it meant. And, and John 15 talks about a branch that doesn't bear fruit and it's going to be cut off. And so he went on to the reasons of why it doesn't bear fruit and why it gets cut off. And he tells stories, Keith Daniel did in this message, about sitting down with a backslider, a preacher who had fallen away, a preacher who had been involved in ministry, but then he fell into sin. And Keith Daniel would sit down with this preacher. And instead of doing what most people did, ask him, what happened? Why did you fall away? Keith said, I would always do this. He said, I would tell them why they fell away. He says, because you neglected your quiet time. You neglected your time alone with God. You neglected time in the Word of God. He said, this, word, this book will keep you from sin. Sin will keep you from this book. And he'd say that over and over and over again. And you know, that message changed me. It made a priority. Spend time reading this book. Instead of a few verses a day, instead of a chapter a day, multiple chapters a day. And, you know, re- re- rehearsing some of these events in my life and these turning points... Um, maybe I'll just put up here the Word of God. I'll just for I'll just put Bible up here. Quicker to write that way. But as I as I as I rehearse some of these turning points in my life, they are rekindling things. You know, it's been years up many of these these things that happen, and it's like it's it's reigniting. Okay, yes, Lord, am I still as passionate about that as I was ten minutes after? listening to that message. Maybe I need another revival, like that revival that happened that time. Here's another turning point. There were some meetings going on here locally, and uh, Brother Dale Heisey was here. And we were going through some things church-wise, and there had been some choices and decisions and directions. And, uh, you know, I really felt Dale was, he was, he was very encouraging in what he said, but he just gave me a, a little tidbit of knowledge that I have never recovered from. We sat together after a, a potluck meal at um, at a fellowship meal after the service there. He just sat down, and we had uh, we'd heard some messages already by that time. And he just said, "You know, there's there's one thing you can always do, no matter what happens in life." You can always do one thing that will change the situation, bring God to your side. And he said, that is, you can always humble yourself. No matter what happens, you can always humble yourself. And just the way he said it, you know, with love, with, I'll just put it up here. Um, 
That stands for humble yourself. Now, the parts of speech are interesting here. If you just take the word humble, it's an adjective. If you take the word humility, it's a noun. But that there is a verb. And you see, that changes things. Because if I ask how many of you are humble, I don't know how many would raise your hand. If I ask how many have humility, the noun, I don't know if many of you would raise your hand. But if I ask how many have an opportunity today to humble yourself, I hope everybody would raise your hand because we all do. It's those individual choices of humbling yourself daily, every situation that you come to, that will eventually make humility the noun, that will eventually make you to be humble the adjective. So it's a choice. You can always humble yourself. That was a turning point in my life. Probably one of the most far-reaching turning points, though, was when God began to do a work in my heart in the issue of economics. I had gone to accounting school. I was, after I came back from Belize, the first things that I did, well, let's see, we were, I went to work in the harvest field. That's when my wife, or my, uh, she wasn't even my girlfriend yet. When this Phoebe Mass came to Oregon to work in in the, in the harvest field. Now, I didn't know what I was going to do long term, but while I was in this harvest, I uh, made a, I was asked to teach school. Actually, I'm sorry, I'm one year off. So, but that, that year, I, I did work harvest, and I went to teach school in Missouri, and it was the next year. The year after that, I went and worked harvest again. But by that time, I'd made a decision. I'm going to go to accounting school and learn to be, uh, you do taxes and accounting and whatever we accountants do. And so that was going to be like the way, the route I chose, like a two-year-plus project. It turned out to be about two years, all, all, all told. But as I was going through that and then getting the, you know, completing the school and going into, uh, I think we we're still actually working on it, but... Uh, I still didn't have my full license, but I was encouraging people to get into retirement savings. I was encouraging people to, uh, you know, get into, well, accumulating wealth here on this earth and so forth. And then this same Curvin Kreider guy, he said, well, before you go too far, he says, I'd like you to listen to this tape. He says, I don't even know what I think about it, but I listened to this tape. It was actually preached right over here at Brownsville Mennonite two years earlier, 96. I didn't know the guy, I didn't know the preacher. Uh, Raymond Harnage from Pennsylvania. But he handed me this tape. He says, why don't you listen to this? About, it was about worldliness. It was about nonconformity. Well, I've been here about nonconformity all my life. Like I say, I grew up in a good church, a church that valued obedience to Jesus, emphasized the Sermon on the Mount, non-resistance, what the Sermon on the Mount says about divorce and remarriage, non-swearing of oaths. The church I grew up in taught that these things were important. So when I get this little tape, cassette tape, handed to me that says uh, non-conformity. I said, okay, this will be an easy listen. So I plugged it in and started listening to it. And he talks about all these things that are worldly, that people don't normally think are worldly. And the one, I actually don't remember a lot about the, the message, except for one little statement. He said, savings accounts are very worldly. And it shocked me to the core. I said, this guy is crazy. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, uh, 
I'm an accountant, and I'm a Christian, and I've been a Christian at this point for over 10 years, and savings accounts were my passion. Retirement accounts were my passion. I knew about compound interest. I knew how long it would take to get up to, say, a million dollars if you started putting money away, $30 a month, $50 a month, $100, whatever it is. You know, if you start out with a certain number and compound interest, if you're getting, you know, if you're only making 3% interest, you're gonna, it's going to take you this long. If you get up to 6% interest, you can do this. And I had these, some of these facts memorized, and I was telling, teaching people them. And so when this preacher from Pennsylvania, of all places, says savings accounts are very worldly, it, I knew he was wrong. I, I, I knew right away this guy is flat wrong. So I began, and, and you know, I wanted to go prove it, though, because I didn't really have the, you know, the verses or whatever in my, uh, in the front of my mind. So I decided, well, I'll go dig. I'll, I'll find. I'll prove this this guy's wrong. So I began an investigation. I started reading through the Bible, and I was kind of shocked at what I found. I was shocked at some of the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Well, Jesus said, first of all, if you love me, obey my commands. Okay, I knew that already. I've been taught that all my life. And so we get to his commands. I'll love your enemies. I've been taught that all my life. Um, you know, don't divorce and remarry. Okay, got that already. Yep, that's good. Don't swear oath. Okay, sure. And then I get to this command. Don't accumulate wealth for yourselves on earth. Wait. I did not know that was in the Bible. Then Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to charity. Well, yeah, I knew that was in the Bible, but he was talking to the rich young ruler. So that must not be for me. But then I looked a little closer and, well, no, it was actually, he wasn't talking to the rich angler. He was talking to his disciples. And Jesus told his disciples, go tell other people to obey what I've just told you. And I wondered, how did I ever, I mean, I read through the Bible multiple times, tried to read through the Bible, maybe. I, I don't know if at that point I was trying to do it once a year, possibly. How did I ever miss this? So I thought, well, I got to dig a little deeper, I guess. So I started, you know, reading articles, uh, writing letters to people, even got a couple of books. There was a book called True Discipleship that Christian Light was carrying. There was uh, a few preachers that I would, would talk to. Some of them were sympathetic. Others would refer me to some other preacher. I think he's kind of got some idea. Go talk to him. So I go talk to this one and one guy from Virginia. He, West Virginia, maybe. He sent me a whole packet of stuff, you know, one of these priority mail envelopes, and he packed tracts and articles and little books in there. And I got this thing in the mail and just read through this, and I was just amazed. Anybody would believe and agree with this guy in Pennsylvania that had said the savings accounts are worldly. And by that point, I had already listened to a series from Charity Gospel Tape Ministry on the Sermon on the Mount by John D. Martin. But it was only... The first half, my sister somehow got a hold of this set of tapes, and it was on Matthew chapter 5. And just the way he pre- I was fascinated by his preaching, but some of his preaching sort of indicated there's more coming. I'm coming back to Bible school next year. I'm going to talk on Matthew 6 and 7. I wonder what he's going to say when he talks about Matthew 6 and 7. So eventually I stuck my neck out and ordered these tapes, and they came in the mail, and I listened to them. And once again, I was shocked. I was a little bit prepared. If I would have heard him cold turkey, I don't know if I would have survived. But I had just I had just enough inclination about what he was going to say that it, was, uh, it wasn't quite as much of a shock. I should say it that way. 
But one of the things he emphasized were some of the statements that Jesus made that are just blanket statements. There's not an if in front of them like this one. Where your wealth is, there your heart will be. Or treasure is the word in the King James, but basically it's just wealth. Wherever you have your wealth, your heart will be there. So Jesus said, don't have your wealth on earth, but rather have your wealth in heaven. And he said, many people try to deny that. They said, I have my wealth in all these farms or all these properties I have or this great big savings account or this retirement account. And they say, but my heart isn't really in it. And he says, but according to the words of Jesus, that's just simply not true. Jesus said very clearly, your heart will be in those things. Well, I resisted that. I thought, surely, Lord, I, and by that time, I, I didn't have a huge amount, but I had a retirement account that I had started working at one of the places I, I was in, and it was growing. And, I, of course, I had kind of projected out far enough that, hey, if I just keep doing what I've been doing faithfully, it'll be huge at some point. And so the idea that my heart is in there. I knew it wasn't good to have my heart in that, but I thought I wouldn't have to have the heart in, my heart in it. But he says, well, Jesus just said it will be. I mean, you know, he said, John, basically he was saying, you're not arguing with me, you're arguing with Jesus. Well, once again, I resisted it until God brought other things into my life. Things, decisions I made that basically, long story short, I lost it. And, okay, well, no big deal. If your heart's not in it, no sweat. But there was sweat. There was lying awake at night, worrying about what's going to happen. There was, uh, there was, it, it did a tremendous, um, it put me under tremendous stress. It wasn't a lot of money, but just the little bit that it was caused me to realize, I think Jesus was actually right. My heart actually was in it. Why would I have... Why would it have affected me so deeply if my heart was never in there to begin with? And I've seen this in other people as well. Just saw a friend down in um, California just, I don't know, just in the last year, six months ago or something, started getting some emails from, hey, pray, I have my life savings. And some guy came along and had this uh, Bitcoin-related investment of some sort, and so I invested in it. And and now I think that guy was actually cheating us. I don't think he's... He, he laughed. I can't even get a hold of him. I'm calling him. He doesn't answer. And he was panicking. Um, well, was his heart in it? Jesus said it would be. Wherever your wealth is, there your heart is. But here's the good news. That all sounds like bad news. But the good news is, is, is also true. The, the opposite is also true. Where If you put your treasure in heaven, your heart will be there. Amen. Investing in the kingdom of God results in your affections being drawn to, to, to Jesus' kingdom. And that was the overriding message that I got. A lot of times people take away is the negative part, but the positive part is, is, is so powerful. And, and so, you know, the, Jesus said, when you give, when you give to charity, when you give to, you know, expand my kingdom, your heart is moving with that check that you drop in the mail. Part of your heart goes with it. And gradually, you can change the location of your heart. So, you know, let me just ask all of you here. What is your net? You know how to calculate net worth. I'm an accountant. We know how to calculate net worth. It's very simple. You take your assets, subtract your liabilities, and the difference is your net worth. Anybody could do it if you just have those three numbers, actually two numbers. It's a simple 
You don't even have to know how to multiply or divide. All you have to know how to do is subtract. Actually, a little bit of addition would be nice, too. You add up all the assets. You add up all the liabilities. You take one and subtract it from the other. And now you have your net worth. Okay, So everybody can calculate your net worth. It's not hard. I could teach you if you have any trouble. Um, did your net worth go up from a year ago today? Do you have a desire for it to go up a year from now? Let me say be careful. Where is your heart? And here's the good news. Get out your checkbook. Start writing checks. Uh, there's a way to move your heart from this earth to some place that is absolutely safe. Jesus said, see, one of the reasons Jesus didn't want our hearts to be here on earth is because he wanted to protect us. He said, your heart will be here on this earth, and that heart can be destroyed by moth and rust and thieves. And Jesus said, I just, well, I'd like to spare you all that. You know, a thief will break in and steal and grabs your heart and goes off with it. A moth will come along and eat up all these clothes. And, oh, my heart just got eaten. Eaten, whatever the right word is there. Um, and this is how treasures on earth do. They just kind of take wings and fly away. But treasures in heaven don't do that. Treasures in heaven will will, will last. They're, they're permanent. And so anyway, this... I. Uh, Eventually, God, you know, it resolved in me writing the book through the eye of a needle. And, uh, of course, that was, that was after being in it several years. That was not the life-changing time in my life, writing that book. It was years earlier when God started laying these things in my heart. The book was just simply, uh, you know, putting some of these things down on paper. And it has, it has obviously, um, yeah, people have read it, written me letters. Most of the bad letters never get to me, thankfully. The good letters are mostly the ones I get. And so I've actually got a folder at home. I've, I've heard, though, that there are some bad ones, too. So I, I, I'm okay with that. That's all right. Here, here's some promises. I've got a question. I'm going to read uh, one, two, three, five, six promises. And I'd like you to listen to these promises. Tell me what they all have in common. These are from the Bible. I don't have any re- references written down. Number one, all these things shall be added unto you. Number two, my God shall supply all your need. Three, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Four, a good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men pour into your bosom. Number five, he that is faithful in that which is least will be faithful also in much. And finally, number six, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room for it. What do those, those promises all have in common? Anybody know? Giving. That's right. They all relate to our finances, our giving, our, our faithfulness in doing what God said to do with our wealth. You know, when I was young, I never thought I would turn 50 and, you know, not have several properties bought, sold, pay, bought, and paid for a nice big retirement account and, you know, several hundred thousand in the, in the bank. I never thought that would happen. I'd turn 50 and, and not have those things. But, you know, as I look back at the life that God has opened up for me through these convictions, possibly, or at least partly, and I just ask myself, you know, would, would I really want to have a different life than I've had? all the blessings he's, he's poured into my life. And I say, no, I really, 
I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been a hugely blessed journey. And it's not contingent. See, God wants so much of what God, that, that's another thing that, that John D. brought out, that it was that so much of what God wants to give us, wealth promises us security, peace, health, good relationships. God says, I want to give you those things. And along comes this thing of wealth, especially if we start laying up treasures on, on earth, and says, hey, I, I can give you those things. You don't need God as long as you have me, says wealth. And so the question is, are we going to take what God has for us, or are we going to, um, are we going to take this counterfeit that wealth, that wealth is like, is want to offer us? And so anyway, it's just been, it's been an amazing journey. These, these, this is part of the gospel. What Jesus gives commands about wealth, don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. Give and it shall be given to you. These warnings, you know, about riches, th- those are actually good news. Jesus was the happiest man alive, you know, and he was, he was, he practiced these things. And, you know, we could talk about all the details. We could talk, okay, look, is there something about working hard? Absolutely. Working hard is, is part of this gospel. Uh, how are you going to, how are you going to give to those in needy, in need if you're lazy? So work hard. Uh, are you going to make arrangements to make sure if you've made commitments to others to, Hey, I'm going to pay this bill. Make sure you get that bill paid. It's not a good testimony not to have that bill paid. So make those arrangements for sure. But then when you have that freedom to do so and you have to choose, am I going to lay up treasures in heaven or lay up treasures on earth? Choose laying up treasures in heaven. Okay, well, so much for that subject. I should have put that up here. Economics, I'll abbreviate it just with that little symbol. The... um, But now it's kind of at a dilemma. See, we all have a passion in our life to, at least we should, if we're disciplined people in any way, shape, or form, to live for the future, not for the present. Living for the present is pretty discouraging. You go to bed at night, say, what did I do today? Well, I did this, I had fun, I did, you know, went to, had, you know, whatever fun is in your life. For a non-professing Christian, it's one thing. For a professing Christian, it's another. But either way, it's gone. By the end of the day, it's gone. That's discouraging. Living for the future is what we is, is what's a, a blessing. And so, when God, through the teachings of Jesus, set me free from this passion to accumulate on earth, it's like, well, where can I lay up treasures? What can I do next? Is there is there anything? And this this is where God opened another door. I was talking to, I think it was Silas Martin. He was talking about one of his sons who was involved in witnessing on the streets and he says he's, he takes these gospel signs out on the streets i thought what i got you're carrying a gospel sign out where people can see it he says yeah this is crazy okay well then my mom gave me a birthday gift i forget 25 dollars gift certificate to shop a shalom this changed names but anyway catches i think it was back then so go down to shop shalom and buy okay i got to spend this 25 dollars gift certificate See this book there, heard about it before, never read it, called A Sower Went Forth, a little blue book from Rod and Staff. I'm going to read this book. Well, this is an amazing story about Ralph Palmer, who went throughout the world, um, throughout the United States, passing out gospel tracts. But then he didn't stop with gospel tracts. He started making gospel signs. 
And you say, well, this, does this really work? Well, yeah, there's testimonies of people seeing these gospel signs and having their lives changed. And so we decided, well, I'd like to try this. So we made a little cardboard gospel sign, took it down to the, uh, took it into town, eventually went to the football games. Eventually Dennis would go with me. He'd hand out tracts. We had to stand apart. If he'd be beside me, nobody would take his tracks. But if he'd get out at a head 100 feet or so, they would take the tracks. And um, eventually those signs, we got a rainstorm, and they just disintegrated. So we started, you know, we, we I ordered a well, I actually talked to some people back east, ended up ordering a, pla- a sign maker, make a vinyl signs, and uh, decided, well, let's make these available to other people. And I'm not sure that's what I was intending, but eventually I got so much, people were seeing these signs and ordering them, and we were so busy making signs for other people to go out on the streets, we hardly had time to go out as much ourselves. I still would love to, still do sometimes when I get an opportunity. But uh, anyway, that's Watchman Gospel Signs. Eventually, that little ministry, I was still going out some. I was standing on the street corner, and an atheist walked up, and, hey, he wanted to interview me, and uh, turned into a situation where we went to their atheist meeting, wrote a letter to them, and then Jeremy Brackett and I went to their atheist meeting and talked to this group of atheists that were bemoaning the fact that there's so many churches and hardly any atheist meetings and here in this liberal town of Corvallis, Oregon. Um, but we had a good time there. It was a little stretching, but we had a good time. And, and you know, those things opened the door to other things. Uh, eventually, that kind of opened the door to Christian Aid Ministries asking me if I'd t- uh, take part in the, the billboard ministry. And so, you know, the, one thing after another, just God, uh, you know, leading, leading us along. And I'm just, again, I'm thankful. God will close one door, open up another door. Uh, making a small decision that's maybe a little bit difficult in one area opens up another. That's 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 the testimony. But so I'm going to put that up here as well. Just put up here. Uh, I could put up here witnessing, but I'll just put up here the initiate the. That's a G. Watchman gospel signs. So you know, that, that's that was. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a big blessing. I talked to a lot of people, a lot of street preacher, a lot of Christians who want to witness around the world. But you know what, I'll finish up with my testimony, and I think of how God has led me. I really want to finish up with a, a very painful part of my journey. Um, it's one that's not easy to talk about, but it's a very key part of who I am today. And this is about my daughter. And, um, you know, when, when Corey made her decisions, at age 18, she made a decision not to, not to uh, stay around home, it was, uh, there, there was pain, there still is, there's grief, there's sorrow. But you know, those emotions are very precious. They're, they're, it's not that I, I would never say I'm glad she made the decisions that she did. But I am glad what God has done in me through her decisions. It's, it's, it, I have to mark it down as a failure. I failed in her life. I failed to win her, uh, her confidence, her trust. Uh, the word was heart, winning your child's heart. Well, we had these CDs about winning your child's heart. And I thought, well, okay, I'll just do those things and I'll follow that CD to a T. Well, I tried and it didn't work. And um, it's, uh, you know, so I heard somebody say later, and this was talking about a family member who had passed away from cancer. Grief never leaves you. Grief just becomes part of who you are. It might it might diminish over time, but it becomes part of who you are. So when I talk about who I am, and give you my testimony, this is very much part of who I am. 
And the grief itself, not, not all the events that led up to it, but the grief itself is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's part of who I am. It's a constant reminder to me about some very important truths. It's a reminder to be grateful. Everything I have has been given to me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve all, you know, to be born into the family I was born into or the country I was born into or all the, you know, things God has done in my life through the years. They've been gifts. And the faithfulness of any of my children is a gift. When my other children make good choices, even Corey, she's made some good choices since then. Not all the choices I wanted, but there's been some good choices. But I can't take the credit anymore. I think if she, if, thing, if that would not have happened, I probably would look at myself as, well, I'm pretty good. You know, the Bible's true. It says, train up a child, and the way you should go, I, I did it. And now all my children are faithful. So I, I'll take the credit for that. But I can't do that anymore. I can only look and say, I'm glad that child is making good choices. I'm grateful. It's a gift from God. That's one thing God did. The other thing was God changed my prayer life. Jeff Young gave me a sermon by, I think his name is D. Duke from Jefferson Baptist up here, about prayer and how God had taken their church through journey after journey and trial after trial, and God laid it on his heart. You know, you don't need to go to conferences. You don't need to read more books about church planning. You need to commit yourself to prayer and lead your church to do the same. We went up there and visited that church. I saw the big 24-hour prayer schedule up on their wall. I talked to the pastor, and he told me some of his journey told me about his own prayer life, and I was kind of blown away with it. But I made a decision after talking to him. Before I wanted to be a prayer person, I wanted to pray, although I think subconsciously I kind of thought, you know what, I'm in ministry. It ought to be the people I'm ministering to that are praying for me. I mean, I preach, so you guys pray, all right? I uh, I make signs, so the people I sell the signs to, they should be praying for me. I got it covered. There, there's prayer happening, even if maybe I'm not doing as much as as I think. But that day I decided, no, that's not good enough. I need to spend time for prayer. In my, uh, the, the, I need to commit significant time to prayer. Used to be, I'd try to pray before my workday began in the morning. You know, so if my work day starts at whatever, 7, 7.30, okay, I'll get up in time to spend some time in prayer and Bible reading before that. But I changed that. Now I do it after my work day begins. It's part of my work day. I try to start my work day at a little earlier than I did before, maybe 6.30. But prayer is not something I do before my work day. It's something I do as part of my work day. Thankfully, I can do that. Not everybody can do that. Being self-employed, I have the freedom to do that. But that change in mentality is uh, has changed my habits. I figured it, okay, this will probably change my income some. It'll probably have a drop in income because I'm not spending as much time working for money. Actually, it didn't. I made more that year after I made that decision, made more money than I did the previous year, made more than I ever did. Don't exp- all, I, all I say is, God, you must have had a reason for, I, I don't know, I don't know. Again, I'll, I'll just leave that in God's hands. But, you know, even through grief and pain, these blessings just keep coming. I have a desire for more gratefulness to God for his love and mercy. I have a desire for more faithfulness. I just want to read a song in closing. It's number 894 if you want to turn to it in your books. Um, 
see if there's one up here. It's a desire for more faithfulness, because I know that everything God has given me, I'm going to someday give account for. And I also acknowledge the danger, and I'm constantly aware of this danger. Like the Apostle Paul said, after, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul, the great Apostle Paul, knew that was a possibility. That's pretty sobering. Is that possible? Yes. I, I, I feel it. I sense it. And uh, so I'm going to read this song, and this is not going to be the last song we're going to look at because I've already asked Benjamin to, follow, to finish up with a song that's a thankful song. This song is not a thankful song. This is a very sobering song. I suppose there's thankfulness woven in here. But it's very, it's, it's very yeah, like I say, it's, it's, it's a warning. It's sobering. 894, a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky, to serve the present age my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Arm me with jealous care as in thy sight to live. And oh, thy servant Lord, prepare a strict account to give. Then the last verse has quite an ending. Help me to watch and pray and on thyself rely, assured, if I my trust betray, I shall forever die. Wow, there's a lot to think about. Let's pray. Father, you've given us here a trust, and it is a precious trust. We are grateful for it. We want to continually give you thanks. The stakes are so high, and we acknowledge that. And we ask you, Lord, to please give us the grace to be faithful with what you have given us. And and truly, every one of us born here in America has so much. And so, Lord, I want to say thank you for what you've given me, both the good things and the hard things, both the joys and the griefs. They are gifts from you. They are trusts to be stewarded. I pray, Lord, that you would help everyone who has heard this message as well to Take these things to heart, Lord. I pray that we would go home with a commitment to serve you with everything that you have. And Lord, I want to finish up with a deep thank you. Lord, you have been so good. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of thanks. Lord, this is... I I, I just... uh, I'm overwhelmed by the blessing upon blessing that you have given. You have entrusted And, Lord, I just want to return it to you. Lord, we just praise you tonight, praise you this afternoon, because you are worthy of our praise. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.